Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to hear some different languages being said during the uh, Lord's Prayer. And it's great to be able with you. My name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at Nolan. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 15 as we continue to look at what God is doing and how he's doing doing it. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew or chair in front of you. Old habits. Um, In the chair in front of you, it's blue. If you don't have one at home, I encourage you to take that and bring it and read it. It is our gift to you. We want you to know who God is as he has shown himself in his word. As you're turning there, have you ever been told that you've won something and then you go to go pick it up and then suddenly you find out there's something else you have to do? It's actually kind of one of my greatest pet peeves with things like roll up the rim to win or something like that. Like you go and uh, you go collect your prize and you have to do some sort of math equation. Like, it makes no sense to me at all. I won that fair and square. Well, not really fair or square, but I won it, and you should just give it to me. But no, now you are required to do some sort of complicated addition uh, in order to get your prize. Now, we all have smartphones with us, so you could just pop that open and do that. But it's something that happens all the time, wherever you do. And you go, man, I can't believe I won this. Oh, yeah, sir, you did win this, but here, just fill up this form first. You're telling me there's something else I have to do in order to win the thing that I already won? That doesn't seem like I won something that's free. As we get into Acts, we have seen God do amazing things through his people as he's calling all people to himself. We see Jews and Gentiles, all the nations, are receiving this gift of grace that God has so lavishly poured out on his people. People who didn't deserve it are getting it. Not only did the Jews not deserve it, but the Gentiles didn't deserve it. And it must have been like winning the lottery for them. But now, now we're going to see that people are coming and telling them that there's just something else that you just need to do, just a little something. In my opinion, not exactly a little thing. And I praise God for what he did. But we th- just a little thing that you have to do. But this is the question that not only the early church struggled with, but it is the same question that we today continue to struggle with. No matter what your background is, we still struggle with this question. What must be done to be a Christian? What is required for salvation? These are issues of what true conversion is. So follow along with me in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. The big numbers are the chapters, if you, do, if you are new to the Bible, and the little numbers are the verses. So Acts chapter 15, the word of the Lord says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching their brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers were belo- who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to cons- uh, consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes them things known from the old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Awesome God, we just thank you for today. What a beautiful day to be able to gather with your people to make much of you. And Lord, as we continue to worship you through the listening of your word preached, I pray that you are indeed made much of. Lord, I want to preach you so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. God, I pray that you would just use this sermon to bring glory to your name joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. In verses 1 to 12, we see that something must be done. Something must be done. God is saving people from all nations. We see that right off the bat in verse 1. There are Gentiles, people who were once outside of God's people, who are now part of God's people. But now we have these Jewish Christians who are coming up from Judea to this town of Antioch. And what's interesting, as you observe, there is almost like an influence uh, shift that is happening. Jerusalem was the man. They were the church. That's where everything started. But influence is being shifted to Antioch as we see what God continues to do. And these men who come up to the Antioch telling these Christians, they say this very specific thing, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of the law, you cannot be saved. Meaning, if you don't do this, you're out. In fact, you never were in. 
The men from Judea are telling the Gentiles that they can either be circumcised or, and keep the law or leave the church. Imagine getting that ultimatum, right? You won the lottery, and then you had the check, and then someone comes up and says, yoink, nope, sorry, you lost it. Verse two, and you can kind of see maybe some of the confusion that is going on in their minds. In Acts 2, we've already seen in verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 4, 12, it says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no talk of something else that needs to happen. But these people from Jerusalem, where the apostles and the elders are, remember we've already been told this, come up and say something else. I'm sure Paul told many of the same things that we've seen Peter have already said to this church in Antioch. You think of Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9, which we've, we're reading about already. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, which means what? You did absolutely nothing, by the way. It is a gift of God and not results of works so that no one can boast. Because if there's even an ounce of something that I can do to make myself saved, guess what my sinful heart's going to do? Look what I did, God. And you all know it. Some of you are smirking knowing it. Romans 3 says, but now that righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, so it's not discounting what God has done in the past, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As a church, we've been walking through memorizing Titus, you know, and our ladies and our moms group, they just finished that up, I believe. And in Titus 3, it says this, for when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he did what? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So who's right? These people that are coming up from Judea who are saying, hey, you're not good to go until you do something, or is it what we see here within God's word? What is needed in order for someone to be saved? See, the problem is that this really isn't just about circumcision. See, once you add that clause to the requirement, the rest of the law comes into play. And we even see that later on with the Pharisees. It's not just be circumcised, but they must practice all the law of Moses. And after Paul, in verse 2, we see, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, which means there was a great debate going on. I love a great debate. Clearly in Paul, sorry, clearly Paul and Barnabas had an issue with what's happening. Why would they have an issue? Is this a hill worth dying on? Well, let's see. 
the visitors are saying that in order to be part of the church, in order to be part of the body of Christ, they had to do something. These visitors of Judah or Judea aren't denying that the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. Okay, keep that in mind. They're not saying that they didn't get the Holy Spirit. They're just saying that, well, there's something else you have to do. But when they do that, they're denying that God is sufficient. And that is a hill worth dying on. What does the Holy Spirit do? He regenerates our hearts. He enables us to believe the gospel. He indwells us. He convicts us of sin and sanctifies us. He makes us more like Jesus. He gives us an assurance of our salvation. And what it means to say, yeah, you have the Holy Spirit, but obviously, you know, you do have that. But there's something else that you need to do. It's saying that the Holy Spirit isn't enough to do these things. It's saying that God himself alone can't save. There's something else that you have to do. So this is a big deal. This is a hill worth dying on. This is what's called a gospel issue. In verse 3, we see being sent on their way to the church. We're going to get this ironed out. Being sent by the church in Antioch to Jerusalem because that is where these men came from. They're going to talk about these issues. They're going to get it done. This is the first church conference we see. Even as a fellowship, we do this. Every year, we get together to see what God is doing and to discuss certain issues. As Paul and Barnabas go on their way, they're telling all the other churches all the news that has happened, and it is received with great joy. Like they're ecstatic because God is at work. That is their response. They're hearing that God is at work, so they rejoice with joy because people are no longer going to hell anymore. They're going to be spending eternity with Christ. When we hear stories of salvation, our response should be the same. Not being jealous at the other church down the street, by the way. You don't hear these other brothers in these other two cities saying, why can't it be us? The response is to praise God. And the issue that is being laid out is how does one have a relationship with God? Is it through the law that, well, history of Israel has proven over and over and over again is impossible to do? because, well, we're all sinful? Or is it through faith and faith alone? And notice on the side note, the object, the subject of everything in here is God. Look what God has done. Has God not done great things? Paul and Barnabas are decreasing, and God is increasing. It's not about them. It's about making much of him. And in verse 5, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, as Paul and Barnabas give an account of all the things that God has done, there's some people that get their necks up and they kind of snub their nose up at the news because there's something that's missing according to their tradition. And these are Christians. These are believers in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for the sins and that he rose from the dead, but they have something else to add. And this statement may have been tied to their traditions of being part of the Jewish religious group of the Pharisees, which, may I add, is the same group that Paul was part of. So he's like the insider. He's the worst person for arguing against because he's already been over here, and now he's over here, so he knows all the other arguments. 
and there's a combat of many, many years of tradition. And I, I'll admit, like, I have some sympathy for that. We all have traditions that we love, and we all have traditions that we cherish, and traditions are okay, and they can be a good thing, and they can even be used to worship God, right? But they can quickly become something that we're not just thankful for, but that we idolize, and that's what's happening. It's like saying, we've never done that before, or we've always done it this way, I have a few friends that are church planters, and it's amazing how fast those terms come up, right? There's a joke from years ago, a comic, one of those Christian comics, and it was a church plant, and the people were setting up the chairs for the morning worship, and there's just this comment, well, we never did that before. And the next slide was second week of church, right? Traditions. It's amazing how fast that they can get really ingrained in us. But there's a big importance of people being, needing to be in the Word of God because it challenges those things that we begin to idolize. And we seek to know what God's Word has to say and making sure that our traditions don't trump what God's Word says. As we see in verse 6, it gives us the purpose of this council, this calling together of all the elders and the apostles, as they take lead to gather together to consider, to test this matter. That's what they're doing. They're testing this matter. And there's a reason why elders need to be men of the word, and this is a great example. This is what we see. We don't see, uh, we, we don't seek to come up with whatever we feel is right, but what God's word says is right. We always ask that question, what does God's word say? And the purpose of this council comes through. And history is full of councils. We stand on the shoulders of many, many, many people who came before us, who fought very hard-fought battles of seeking to answer what God's word has to say. You know, I think of, I think of uh, the historical Council of Nicaea, which was addressing the Arian controversy, which was basically teaching that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he was created by God. You see where that becomes a problem? This is where we get the classic story of St. Nicholas slapping, one of my favorites. This is how we deal with heresy. No, you don't do that. But he's saying that there's no co-eternal or that, the same, that Jesus is not the same nature as the Father. We also see other councils throughout history as they seek to understand and clarify who God is according to his word. See, the early church is going to test this matter by taking it to the Bible and taking the issue that is at hand, open God's word, and seek to see and understand what God, who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, says about himself. And here's the question, again, what is needed for salvation? What does it mean to be a Christian? And they bring it to God's word to see what he has to say. In verses 7 to 11, we see that Peter begins to recall how God used him to go to Cornelius. Remember, that's my favorite vision, right? With a, with a blanket full of food coming from heaven. It's the best one. But what does God declare in that moment? Everything is clean. And he recalls all that God did. 
He gave the Gentile centurion and his associates the Holy Spirit without being circumcised. God cleansed their hearts by faith, making sure that their hearts are clean and new and saved them through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as the Jewish believers had already done. And Peter makes a great point here. We weren't able to keep the whole law. Hey, Bob, did you keep the whole law perfectly? And Bob's like, no, I I didn't. So why would we impose that upon other people? It didn't work for us. Why would we do that for them? There's no example that God withholds anything from the Gentiles throughout all the scripture. As we get into verse 10, he says, Now therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And what is a yoke? A yoke is something that you carry something with. And it's a yoke that no one could carry. And this party that's trying to get these Gentiles to be circumcised are doing the same thing that Israel had done time and time again. Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to test as you tested him at Massah. To put God to the test is actually to show unbelief. It's to say, I don't trust you, God, so I'm just going to make sure, right? If, if I'm testing something that I've built, right, like we were just watching this YouTube video of this dad who made a roller coaster in his backyard. I'm not that cool. But he made it. What did he do? He didn't just put his kid up on the roller coaster and say, hey, let's see how this goes, <laughs> right? He tested it. So why did he test it? Because he's not 100% certain that is going to work, right? I once had a, I have a family member who will remain nameless, who is a a civil engineer, and he said to me that he was 99% sure that I could do something in my house. I'm like, well, what about the 1%? Let's test this theory out a little bit more before my whole house falls down on itself. We tested things, and that's what they're doing here. They were testing God, and when I'm testing something, it means that I'm not quite sure and believe that to be true. Unbelief in what, who God is and what he has done, that God is sufficient, and there's nothing we can add to make God be pleased with us more. That's the issue. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 11, 28 to 30? And this is one of my favorite passages. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does it really seem like this Thing that we see these people telling this church in Antioch that they must be circumcised in order to be saved, is that something that Jesus is, has said? The issue that is being laid out is how does one have a relationship with God? Is it through the law that history of Israel proves is impossible because we're all sinful, or is it through faith and faith alone? Why put a yoke that you can bear upon someone else? And the law serves as a purpose, though, and it shows us our need of a Savior because, you know, if you're going out street evangelizing, I've seen this before, I've taken part in this before, you start going through the Ten Commandments, right? 
hey, tell me, you're perfect. You're good enough to go to heaven. Yes, I'm great, good enough. I'm a good person, they say to me. They tell, tell Pastor Chris. So let me ask you, did you lie? And if they say no, then they lied, because everyone lies. Have you ever lusted, stolen, cheated, wanted something that wasn't yours? Go through the list. We all have, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So why would we put that yoke upon someone else? If it's my works that get me into heaven, I'm in trouble. Even Hebrews 11, sorry, 10 and 11 tells us that it wasn't through what someone did that saved us, but through faith in Christ, who is our sacrifice once and for all. So verse 11 comes along and he says, Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through his grace, through the grace of Lord, our Lord Jesus. And just as they, the Israelites and the, Gen, uh, the Jews, uh, did not do anything to, to win that favor with God, it is only through belief. It is the same with the Gentiles. It is by grace. And what is grace? It's a beautiful thing, worthy being reflected upon. Is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And they're saying, if you do something to receive grace, it's not grace. It's my wages. When I worked an hourly rate job, I would put in my hours and I expected a paycheck. But Jesus, God's word says, but my wages in life equals death. Acts 13, 39 says, and in him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Peter reminds them once again that they have been saved by grace, which means they've been free from the unbearable burden of the law of Jesus' death by the law, by Jesus' death and his resurrection, by what Jesus has done. They are free from the burden of seeking to please God with their actions. And how can Jesus save? Because he fulfills the requirements of the law perfectly. We couldn't, but he did. He was sin sinless, tested and tried as we are, but remained sinless. He fulfilled every part of the law perfectly so that for those who confess that Jesus is the Messiah who died and rose from the dead will be saved. Because Jesus' death is sufficient. My works are junk. Put a stronger word there. So the point is this. Yes, something needs to be done. But not by you. It has been done by Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Meaning that the law binds, but the grace of Jesus frees. If you and I are trying to soothe our conscience by trying to act right, we will find ourselves tied to a taskmaster of guilt and fear because we can't do it perfectly. And for the perfectionist like me, it's why half the time we don't start something, right? And we will keep asking ourselves these hard questions. Have I done enough? 
Is God pleased with me now? But in Christ, we are free. And the men of Judea were seeking to bind what has been made free. So you want to know how to be free? You want to know how to have true freedom? It's not found in trying to work harder at making God love you more. By seeing, uh, the abs- it's by seeing the absolute boundless and undeserved love that God has poured out on us through his son Jesus Christ, as one person put it. God has done enough. Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. You know what that should bring? (sighs) I can't put a word to that. Hmm. The point is this. The law showed us that we couldn't bear God's holy standard, but Jesus did. He took the yoke upon himself on the cross, perfectly fulfilling the law so that anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus will be saved. No other yoke. You have one party that is saying something more has to be done in order to be saved and to receive this this gift of salvation. The apostle is saying, no, the only thing that is needed is faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. Just Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. Not only has something been done, but James continues on in 13 to 21 and says that it was always part of the plan. And James is Jesus' half-brother, which if you remember your gospel, he was part of the family that was trying to get Jesus. He was thinking Jesus was crazy. And you see the redemptive power of God even in the life of James, because now James is standing up. Now he's the leader in the church. You see how God continues to work, and James takes reports from Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, and he elevates them to a whole new level by anchoring them deep into God's word. He says, to take from them a people for his name, which is a huge statement because it echoes much of what the Old Testament talks about with the Jews. God has taken Gentiles who are not part of his family and has made them a people for a name for his own glory, for his own sake. This is what Romans 11 talks about. This is what Galatians 3 verse 28 talks about, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as he continues to quote Amos, the prophet who said this over 700 years ago. He's saying that the restoration of Israel will go hand in hand with the inclusion of all nations. And Jesus has brought what was separate together and has made a people for himself. And what is happening is exactly what God had planned for to happen. This is not some sort of plan B. This was always plan A. So if the Gentiles come to faith was all part of God's will and purpose, then that means to put something in the way of that is to act against God. So yes, again, this is a hill worth dying on. This is a hill worth dying on because it is an issue that threatens the gospel. Either what it means to be a Christian means to have faith in Jesus alone or something else. That means for here, it's circumcision. And I love James because he, he, he roots it in, in, into God's word. 
And he makes God's word the foundation of this argument, not just hearsay. Yeah, I'm going to take this hearsay. I'm going to take what has happened with Paul and Peter and Barnabas, and I'm going to say, look, this was always the plan. So don't be surprised. And in verse 90, he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't require them to do something that God says is not a requirement for salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What has God done? God has given us a new life, and a new life that transforms us. And that's kind of what he begins to talk about in verse 19 following. See, we can take God's grace and we can pervert it in all sorts of great, amazing ways. Isn't it? It's amazing to me. Oh, I'm a Christian. Well, all I have to do is believe. Well, yes. But that belief is followed by transformation, which means stop playing in the muck of your life. And that's what James encourages the church to do in verse 19. We should write them to abstain from four things. These four things, two of them are part of the Mosaic law, and the other one has to do with their moral life. And what James is seeking for these people to see and to understand is that this is part of their witness too, both to the Jews and to those around them. But also that God has called you out of darkness into your light, which means stop being a people that look like you're still in darkness. If Jesus has saved you, and if he has called you to yourself, there is a transformed life. There is something different in your heart. Your, your, your attitudes towards sin change. And he is telling them to leave their old life, but also saying that they are living as Christians among Jews. They are, these are things that they can do for the sake of their Jewish neighbors. So what James is saying is that, yes, there's non-negotiables. There's things that, there's only one person who saves, and that's Jesus Christ. Nothing else can save you but belief in Jesus Christ. And we can't compromise on that. But when the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are being sanctified, which means you are becoming more like Jesus. Romans 6, verse 15 to 19 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? For thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." God's grace in your life doesn't give you permission to continue your old life, as James says. You are a new creation. 
as 2 Corinthians 5:17, which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the question that becomes evident to me as I was looking at this, if you continue to play in the muck of life, which Galatians 5 defines, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, which means it's not exhaustive, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If these things are the things that mark your life rather than growing in Christ-likeness, you have to ask yourself some serious questions. And James comes and he tells them to abstain. But abstaining from these things doesn't make you saved. As one person put it very wisely, abstaining from sexual morality is not a requirement for being saved, though it is a requirement for the Christian life. Avoiding sexual immorality does not turn a non-believer into a believer, nor does it guarantee salvation or provide assurance. At the same time, the New Testament does not hold our spiritual security and assurance as a safety net for sexual immorality. An act of sexual morality does not imply that one cannot be or is not a Christian, but it is characteristic of those who do not inherit the kingdom of God. Because Jesus alone saves by faith. And, the, and this faith in Jesus transforms our thinking and our behavior. And you won't become transformed overnight. Talk to our older saints. Say, hey, are you still struggling with this or with that? And they'll hopefully, honestly, say yes. But there is a movement forward. To believe in Jesus Christ is to have a transformed life. A transformed life is a noticeable life. God has planned for something to happen by calling the Gentiles for his name's sake, and the outflow of that call is a life that has been transformed. So for us today, we live a Christian life because we have been saved, not because it saves us. That also makes us a light to the nations around the world. So what, you may ask, and let me go back to the beginning, doesn't it suck to receive a gift and find out there's something else you have to do? It doesn't make it a gift anymore, right? So this is the fundamental question we have. What must be done to be a Christian? What is required for salvation? And in Acts 15, verses 1 to 21, we see the clash of titans that we still clash with today. Two answers come up to this question. One, on one side, we have that to be a Christian means to have faith in Jesus and do something else like circumcision. The second answer is what it means of what it means to be a Christian is that it requires faith in Jesus alone. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 seems to sum it up very well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. God's word is clear. Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. And what does this do for you and for me? 
Let me ask, are you feeling like you're stuck? Do you feel like you're stuck in a never-ending cycle? Have I done enough, God? God, are you pleased with me now? Come to Jesus. True freedom is in him. In Christ, we are free. Matthew 11 tells us that Jesus comes up and gives us this big bear dad hug. Right? Embracing his people who are weak and who are broken. These are the people who feel swamped with heavy burdens. Do you feel like you're a spiritual loser? Come to Jesus. For us, sometimes we add other things that are required to be a Christian, and the problem would have been solved with a simple solution, recognizing that God has been saving the Gentiles the same way as he's been saving the Jews. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who is the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And that's the same for you and for me. We all come to a holy God on the same basis, through faith in Jesus Christ. So why, what does it look like to have faith in Jesus Christ? It means, faith in Jesus means we repent, which means we agree with God that we are sinners. That means that we renounce our sins. We renounce our sins. Don't play in the muck anymore. And turn our back on that old way of life. And we believe, repent and believe. Put all our confidence in the person of Jesus as our substitute, whose death was enough to rescue a broken people like you and me. And what that person didn't under, what these people didn't understand is that God had been working in the life of so many people before of these Gentiles. The gospel is a call to obedience. So there is something that you must do, I guess. That something is to repent and to believe. But as Ephesians says, that's not even a work of your own. Because Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. And he accomplishes through giving his son, who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law, so that anyone who puts their faith in him will be saved. He accomplishes it by giving us the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of sin and sanctifies us, making us like Jesus. I praise God for people in my life that say, hey, Nate, I've seen you grow in this way. We need people in our lives that tell you that because sometimes it feels like we're just spinning our wheels in the muck of our life. But at the same time, as hard as we, as much as we work our faith out with fear and trembling, as Peter says, we need to understand that Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. And he's given us his word so that we may know him and learn him more. See, the gospel has a past, present, and future implications. We need to be reminded of these things constantly. It has a past for, for those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, it has a past because God saved us. It has a present because it continues to work out in our lives, making us more like Christ. It has a future because as Pastor Sam reminds us, Jesus is coming back. But Jesus has done enough for God to be pleased with us. And what does that mean? Let's pray.